Hello, kings and queens. Thank you so much for tuning into You Good the podcast. I'm so glad to have you guys on here for you to listen to me talk like I normally do. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope whatever time you're listening to this that you guys are having a good day so far. I'm sorry if I'm a little bit echoey. I'm trying to change locations to just see like where I best sound like in general. So I'm hoping that this is okay. If not, possibly next week, we'll just have to go to another location. <laughs> Podcasting is just trial and error, I promise you. Like, I I don't know. It, it seems so easier when I did season one and two, but now it's like things have changed. I'm in a new city, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that's not why you're here. Um, I decided to, um, I've noticed that when I was looking at things I wanted to talk about. I wanted it to be very relevant. And typically I'm the type of person that has a lot of ideas set in motion. Um, But I wanted to discuss this topic because um, of something that has happened recently that has really bothered me. And honestly, I kind of view creating a podcast or podcasting in general as a way to connect or further connect with people. Um, Because there's sometimes where I feel super alone and I feel like no one in this world knows what I'm talking about or is not dealing with the things that I'm dealing with. And, you know, there are. I feel like there's so many people who, um, you know, share so many commonalities, but we just don't really get the space or the chance to discuss it. Or maybe it's not a topic that you feel is worthy to be discussed. But um, I don't know. I, I really wanted to talk recently about body image and what that means and why we have these certain expectations and these certain way of thinking when it comes to the topic of body image, especially how it relates to um, current trends that are in our society. Um, To kind of follow up on that idea, I really want to discuss a moment that I faced earlier this week that really affected me wholeheartedly enough for me to even record a podcast about it. Um, So a little bit of backstory, I had a um, good person in my life who made a comment that um, really agitated me, made me feel really self-conscious, and basically this person said that I needed to lose weight. Not only did she tell me that I had to lose weight, but she pointed where I needed to lose weight. And for me, um, weight recently has been a very uh, touchy subject because it's a subject that now I'm starting to not get a better grasp on, but just something that's become more obvious for me. Growing up, I was just very skinny. I think a lot of people would categorize me as naturally skinny, which is like, what is that? Um, And so for a long time, I didn't really have to worry about like dieting or like lifestyle or making any sort of other changes to the way that I eat because I had a really high metabolism and like I can literally eat whatever I wanted, healthy or not, and I wouldn't lose any, lose any weight or gain any weight. I think I stayed the same amount of weight for five years. And then I think once I turned, I wanna say 17, um, I started to gain weight like little by little, but it wasn't that bad. But then as I got older and I got on like birth control and I got on antidepressants and things like that, 
um, I started to gain more weight and it's become a huge pill for me to swallow in general. Um, and I, it's not like I'm upset about it too much. I think um, I had mentioned this in my old podcast and I, I think I will definitely do another episode to kind of wrap all of you guys or bring you up to speed. But basically, um, I had a social eating anxiety disorder um, when I was about 16 and it lasted from 16 to I would say 21. I had this fear of eating um, especially in, in public settings with friends not so much with families but mostly friends. Um, it stopped me from dating, it stopped me from going to certain functions and hanging out with people that I love because I was afraid of basically getting sick in front of people, throwing up, things like that. I know it's very nasty, I'm so sorry, but like that is the truth. And there was a, a point in my life where I actually, I'm not a very religious person, but I actually prayed to God and I said like, please let me love food. Because it wasn't like I was doing this to look a certain way or restricts, restrict myself to be, or to fit into a certain image. I, I just don't know what happened one day, I could eat as much food as I want and not feel this like hesitation and then next day leading up to five, six years, um, I had a hard time just eating. It I don't it's very hard for me to explain. You guys might have to look it up and I can definitely do another episode about it. But it bottom line, it was just really hard for me to eat in general. So now at being twenty-four I don't have that problem anymore and I love it. I love the fact that now I can eat and I don't feel scared to eat around other people. And, you know, I think with that, I kind of feel like happy, but also kind of like upset because now because I love food so much, I have a hard time controlling the amount that I eat. And that has led to a slight binge eating disorder um, that I'm still kind of working out and things like that. I just feel like I love food too much. I feel like I can't stop. I like will eat and still feel full, but still continue eating. It's just been a really weird journey for me recently. Um, and so I'm assuming that is what has caused me to gain weight. And um, with this comment that this person said in my life, uh, my immediate reaction was I have to find the quickest way for me to lose weight. Um, because I felt so self-conscious. I felt like no one was going to like me. I felt like this part of my body was so obvious that like it's going to stick out um, and no one's going to care about who I am and you know the type of person that I am and the personality that I have and whatever. Instead, they'll look at this insecurity of mine. And so I think the last podcast, my first podcast, obviously, um, I had mentioned to you guys that I would sprained my foot. But in the midst of this um, discussion I had with this person and the follow-up of me feeling like I have to go on this immediate diet and start working out, I was actually considering going back to the gym and working out even though my foot, my ankle is still swollen and sprained. And I just felt like that was a terrible moment of weakness because if I actually followed through, I would um, I would further injure my foot and prevent myself from healing in a you know better moving forward and so I really had to stop and really sit down with myself and talk to myself and say like why why do you feel this urge to change who you are do you feel happy are you okay like it's not like I'm unhealthy I went to the doctors like two weeks ago they said that I'm fine but 
because this person made me feel the way that I did, I felt like obviously there was something wrong with me. And that kind of led me to want to talk about especially um, current trends um, or aesthetics that are in our society that can be really damaging towards the topic of body image and the way that we perceive ourselves and things like that. I think that, um, you know, the social worker in me is always trying to figure out the solution to some of my problems. And when I am dealing with a problem like this, I like to think, why do I have these thoughts or these behaviors or have these thought processes? And I've noticed it's because of the expectations that have been put on us, especially as females in general. I feel like the whole lifestyle culture, the whole um, popular trends, I feel like it's very female-centered and it affects a lot of women in general. Um, I've never really seen like trends that affect men. Um, It's mostly women because I feel like in society we put women on a pedestal and we feel like women are supposed to act a certain way, be a certain way, especially along the lines of femininity. And if they are not feminine or they're not acting like a quote unquote woman or whatever that freaking entails, then they're less of a woman. And um, so, yeah, I just I, you know, with me babbling and things like that, um, I just wanted to discuss some trends that I've been finding that have been circulating um, on social media, like places like TikTok and YouTube or Instagram and Twitter um, and just discuss how like, you know, what changes need to be made and um, how we can like, I don't know, just kind of like talking and really giving a great breakdown of why it's so toxic towards women. So enough of that. Um, So the first trend I really want to talk about is the clean girl aesthetic um, or the clean girl, no makeup look, whatever interpretation you want to do with that. Um, When I, for, let me, let me think about this because um, from what I can recall, this trend I feel like really started in like 2019 and I feel like still people are talking about it. Okay, so I had to look this up and there, because there's just so many interpretations of what the clean girl aesthetic look look likes or look likes. I don't even know how to speak today. Looks like. Um, and so it's just better for me to find like an article or something that, you know, someone has actually put a lot of research in this. Um, so I actually found this article on mindbodygreen.com and the article is, uh, called people are buzzing over the clean girl aesthetic, but it's not as new as it seems by Jamie Snyder. So in this article, Snyder talks about how the clean girl aesthetic is basically defined as a model off-duty or no makeup makeup look. Um, essentially, it's a natural looking beat or style of makeup that focuses on dewy and glowy skin. Think tinted moisturizers and fluffy natural brows over smoky eyes and sharp contours. Throw in a slick back hair, gold jewelry, and a jumble jumbo claw clip and you've got it nailed down um she further and talks about in this article why it's called clean so it she says since its rise in popularity the trend has received quite a lot of pushback obviously and rightfully so first the phrase clean girl can be exclusive as it implies a dirty girl on the flip side that if you prefer a heavier coverage or full face beat that you so that you are somehow less clean Um, so 
I my interpretations of this clean girl look obviously has started with makeup. I think you know, especially if you are really into makeup, um, and you kind of know the trends and the ins and outs. Um, a lot of people tend to gravitate towards a more natural looking makeup look. Basically, that includes less product, less coverage, but more of like a hydrating, dewy look. Like that type of look that if like, let's say someone who doesn't know much about makeup looks at you, they might think that you have nothing on, right? Um, it's kind of like the glow within. And I think with clean, when I think of clean, I also think of like a clean diet or a clean lifestyle. So like eating organic or whole foods that include no preservatives or dyes or whatever. And I think that those two uh, depictions of clean, especially a clean lifestyle, goes hand in hand because let's let's talk about it. So like when, when you are on a diet or you are eating a certain way, a lot of people may change the way that they're eating because it may affect their body or their skin. You know, if you're eating a lot of junk food, a lot of oils, a lot of like additives and things like that, it may show up in different ways on your body, like on your skin, like pimples and things like that. So I think like the clean aesthetic is really emphasizing how you want to take care of your body so that you can glow, take care of, of yourself within so you can glow without or glow out if that makes any sense like I feel like I feel like some people are going to be listening to this and it's like why do we care but the reason why I want to discuss this is because the word clean also has a lot of negative or just a certain connotation that we probably may not look too much into but can be very damaging towards a lot of people um so um before I kind of jump into that, I do want to kind of add that personally, I think that the clean girl aesthetic is very much uh, European European centric or just whitewashed in general, because with the clean girl aesthetic, it really emphasizes on the idea of basically looking like you just got out of bed, you put minimal makeup on, you basically had a natural look and then you walked out the door. And I feel like that sort of perspective is very common or very aligned with white culture versus any other culture like people of color because me as a black woman I can't just you know get out of bed <laughs> walk out the door and be presentable it takes a lot of work because of the already assumed you know like perspective and um, on our culture and how we view black culture black beauty in general right so black hair is more textured it takes a little bit more work and especially because of like the history that we have about our black hair and how it's not viewed as quote-unquote professional we have to do a lot of things include a lot of products so that we can fit align with the european centric um, way of beauty basically so long story short i can't just jump out of bed like I have to go and put gel in my hair, I have to slick back my hair and things like that versus a white woman who probably can just put some dry sh shampoo in her hair and walk out the door. Now I know some people are gonna be like, but what about people who wear wigs? My point is, is that it's just very, it's, it is very whitewashed. Um, I think even the term clean is very whitewashed because when I think of clean, I think of fresh. I think of the colors of clean, I think of white you know, clean, 
not anything too funky, not anything and or anything um, eccentric and things like that versus dirty. You know what I mean? I feel like it has the same connotation of black and white, even though white does not necessarily mean that it's good and black doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Um, and so I, I think that moving forward, if we want to create change or we want to kind of step away from this notion of, you know, black versus white, literally and figuratively, we have to understand that words do have meanings when we, when we, um, they have meaning and they have certain connotations. And so I feel like instead of, you know, throwing out the word, uh, clean, we can maybe throw out the word natural because that's what it is. And people can decipher whether or interpret what natural means for them. Like when you look up clean girl aesthetic on Pinterest, nine times out of 10, you're going to see a white woman in neutral colors. You know, it might showcase like some, like a smoothie or a coffee or like a slick back look or things like that. Um, and it's not really showing people of color, people who are not white, who want to maybe have this quote, clean girl look. Um, like, I don't know, like I, there was one time I was on YouTube, um, right? Cause I said that I love YouTube videos, which I do. It's like a form of TV. It's like a different form of TV. But anyway, I follow this YouTuber. I'm not going to say her name cause I love her, but, um, not to say that like the number amount of followers I have on here is just going to like freaking Beyonce beehive her, you know what I mean? Like, but I'm just saying like, I think maybe she just made a mistake and instead of me kind of like throwing her under the bus and canceling her, I can kind of give her the benefit of the doubt because I think she's a great person. But basically, um, long story short, <laughs> um, I was watching one of her YouTube videos and she was talking about how she wanted to teach her viewers how to do a slick back hair, right? And I was like, okay, cute. Like I'll support her, let me watch it. And she basically was talking about how she, um, how she slicks back her hair, she uses a gel, which is very, very common. You have to use something to kind of keep your hair in place, things of that nature. And that is the hairstyle that is aligned with a clean girl aesthetic, very slick back, not messy, just very simple, but put together. And so when she was describing this tutorial, she pulled out eco styling gel, which y'all, if you are black, Hispanic, anyone who is not white, right? You know what eco-styling gel is, and you know that it is a predominant feature, a predominant item in our culture in general, especially if you, ha if you have very curly hair. And so as she's putting, in this, putting the eco-styling gel into her hair, she keeps on describing the gel as nasty and disgusting, and I know it's terrible, but, right? And I know that she's a good person. I know that, like, she you know, maybe didn't really consider the effects that her words had, but it really rubbed me the wrong way because I feel like clean girl aesthetic is really like modern cultural appropriation. Because like I said before, like a lot of black women, they had to, we have to still look a certain way in order to be viewed as professional um, or educated, right? If you walk into a job interview with your full natural hair afro, you might get some looks. I know it's 2022 i know some people say oh well the world is not racist but it's like no people still have a certain um a certain way and they harshly judge people who are not white right um so you know slick back hair routines or hairstyles 
it's just something that is very natural, very easy to maintain, especially for people of color. So the fact that now white women are now saying, oh, we, we now do slick back hair and we put our hair in claw clips and like this is a look really kind of rubs me the wrong way because it's like people of color, women of color have been doing this for ages because that was all we could do. Because if we did anything more or less, we would viewed we, we would be viewed harshly, right? I would never, like, it's sad for me to say that, but for a long time, I would have never uh, gone to a job interview with my natural hair, afro, everything, because I knew I was going to be judged. So the next best thing that I had to do is to slick back my hair, right? Um, so I just feel like some of these, some of these trends, you know, are just very, like, everyone pretends like it's new it's like this new fresh idea but it really isn't it's just a different way of appropriation sometimes i'm not saying all the trends out there are like cultural appropriation but we need to understand like where are these trends coming from stop saying that you you created or you invented the slick back hair and the claw clip and gold earrings and the minimalist look when literally people have been doing that just to survive and to get a paycheck right okay let me get off my high horse about that but i hope you guys get the idea that like instead of us saying clean girl we need to start changing the the name because it's not clean like what what the hell is clean right instead we can maybe say natural or simple right instead of just clean okay we're gonna take a really quick break i know like i said i was gonna say all these trends but <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break because i i probably am just boring you I, I hope i'm not boring i hope it makes sense of what i'm saying but we'll be back shortly scheduled program um i okay let me try to figure out okay sorry i listen i had to like step away for a quick second because my foot fell asleep and i'm sitting on my bed thinking i could be comfortable but um i guess god does not have that planned for me um he said chaos chaos is brewing so it's fine anyway so the next topic or the next uh, trend that I really wanted to discuss, which I might get some pushback, I know I will, because I know some people are gonna be like, don't take it so seriously. But it's like, again, we need to sometimes ask yourself like, why do we give into this? Why do we give into this notion? But the next one I wanna talk about is the iconic term, hot girl 
summer, right? Um, for those who do not know the term hot girl summer, it has been coined by the queen, um, Megan Thee Stallion, Meg Thee Stallion. Uh, she was the creator of Hot Girl Summer. It was, I can't, okay, I love Meg Thee Stallion, but I also don't really listen to her as much. I'm not like a dedicated fan. So like, don't shoot me because I may get some information wrong. But basically, Hot Girl Summer came from a song that she created in 2019, I think. I felt like it was 2019, where she basically talked about like, it's like this new mantra for anyone i feel like hot girl summer is not exclusively to just women i feel like i've seen or heard some people define it as if you consider yourself hot then you are having a hot girl summer whether you are male female whatever um so i had to also look up the definition on urban dictionary because i want to be as accurate as possible even though urban dictionary is not a credible source it is in my heart because i grew up in that generation where I don't know if any of you guys did this where uh, you would look up your name in Urban Dictionary and see if the definition of the name or the description of your name really matched who you are. I don't think mine did, but I don't know if it's changed. Anyway, let me stop talking. Let me stop rambling. Um, so Hot Girl Summer is defined on Urban Dictionary as um, Coach Meg, aka Meg the Stallion, the creative Hot Girl Summer, said it best. Hot Girl Summer is about, quote, just being you, just having fun. It's turning up, driving the boat, not giving a damn about what other people are saying. A summer where you are in charge of your own happiness, chasing the bag, and we ain't crying over no man, period, with a T, right? So I love the idea of, you know, living this, like, carefree life. You know, you kind of doing what you want to do, no no regrets, no limitations, nothing holded, holding you back. Because I feel like there's a lot of people who might feel like they can't do certain things because um, of certain little doubts and things like that. And I feel like this term, uh, hot girl summer, really emphasizes on you just kind of doing you, doing what makes you happy and living your life to the fullest, right? I love that. I love that sort of mentality, right? But here's what my beef is about um the term hot girl summer and what is it's defined as right number one is why are we always as a society putting um definitions or themes on um on the seasons right so like i feel like summer is iconic for like just doing whatever the hell you want no regrets going to parties staying out late you know like just doing whatever you want. Fall is about like getting your shit together, right? Because school get is coming together, you know, you might have to go back to work, even though at, if you're an adult and you have an actual working paying job, nine to five, um, it's not like school. It's not like you're on summer break, you're still working. But I feel like fall is all about like getting your professional career set up. Then winter, because it's shorter days and you know, it's more quote unquote sad and dreary and blah, blah, blah like people are trying to find like their inner peace and making sure that like you know individually they're doing okay and then spring is more like oh the summer or not the summer but like spring of love like i want to find my true love i want to have a date for valentine's day and it's like why do we keep on doing this right because personally i hate the summer i don't like getting hot i don't like feeling like i'm gonna die from heat exhaustion so 
if I'm not doing these things and having a good time during the summer, am I not having a hot girl summer? Like, I feel like it's only exclusive for people who like the summer, who go out, who also have money, right? Meg the Stallion, apparently everyone thinks a hot girl summer also includes you going out, partying, going on trips, things like that. I'm a broke girl, right? I do cat sitting, right? I just got out of grad school, probably filled with, I know I'm filled with so much debt. I don't have time to go in, to just drop a dime and go to the Bahamas, you know? So because it makes me feel like because I'm not being included in on this trend, I'm not a hot girl or I'm not living this fun summer, right? Because for me, I thrive in the fall. I love the fall. I love pumpkins. I love apple picking. I love Halloween. I love like the leaves dying <laughs> and falling. I love it, I, especially uh, fall in New York City. So like, I just feel like it's just very limiting on like what a hot girl summer is. And I don't know, it's just really, I don't know how to describe it. And I know that like some people are like, it's just a trend. Like you don't have to, again, like I just said in the beginning, like you don't have to kind of like bend yourself backwards over it. But like we are constantly doing that like subconsciously, right? I feel like because I'm not going out and doing all these lavish things and I'm not having a good quote hot girl summer. My other beef with hot girl summer is within the definition that I just described, right? So the de one one part of the definition talks about how uh, hot girl summer entails you chasing the bag, right? Chasing your dreams, not giving a shit about what other people are saying. And so when you look up the definition of chasing the bag, it basically means to grind hard, to hustle, to achieve certain goals, high goals and especially. So I feel like hot girl summer really emphasizes on the grind culture, which includes always being on a go, never really taking a rest, just keep on moving forward uh, to achieve the things that you want to achieve. And again, like, I love the whole goal setting. I love kind of like really taking ownership and leading leadership in your life. But like, it does not mean that we have to constantly be on a go. And if we're not on a go, it means that we're, we're not a good person, or we're less productive. I don't know what that means, right? But um, or I don't know if I'm making any sense. But I just feel like if you're not doing what a hot girl summer entails, I feel like a lot of people are feeling like they are not having a hot girl summer. I hope that makes sense. Um, I feel like I'm rambling. I feel like I'm just going in circles. But <laughs> basically, what I, bottom line is that a hot girl summer really implies that you have to live a certain lifestyle in order to fit into this narrative of what it entails. But in actuality, we are human, we are flawed, we make mistakes. And just because you may have doubts, you may have regrets, you may have all these certain things that quote unquote may hold you back, does not mean that you're not capable of having a good summer or that you're not capable of being a quote hot girl. Because like I said in the beginning, you can have a hot you can have a hot girl summer if you're just a hot person, right? And that's all debatable. That's all um, you know, up to your own view of what you think a being attractive is it doesn't have to be physical it could be mental it could be whatever but bottom line with all of these trends is like you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt but also understanding that like these trends can be really harmful and that again like I said before betting yourself backwards over you know what it entails what what does it mean how to like have or feeling this need that you have to do it it's just 
so it's just so frustrating because trends are trends for a reason you know they don't last very long uh they change constantly and they're always based on really unattainable things that the common person can't really achieve um so trends are not always very positive i feel like it's a really toxic way of consumerism but we need to understand that like you know you can always like follow certain trends but you know it's not really good to just keep on um i don't know like changing your whole life changing your whole perspective to fit this narrative when it seems really one-sided and doesn't really fit everyone and everyone's needs um so yeah that's my spiel about it i was going to talk about um another trend but i feel like now thinking about it um i might um cannot speak today i feel like i might do another episode about it because it can be really big and take a long time but i really want to talk about um sustainability uh sustainability has also been one of those like buzzwords recently and I feel like there's so many different ways that I can discuss this. So if you know anyone or if anyone is listening to this and you know or you are a person who um, knows anything about fashion and um, would like to talk about this topic or, you know, just kind of talking about like uh, if you are actually trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle like, and it's been somewhat successful, like let me know because I personally have been trying to live a very sustainable lifestyle and it's been really hard. Like, I really want to save Mother Earth, but, like, oh, God. Do you know how much plastic I, you know, like, I use? Like, I feel so bad. I feel so, so bad. I use so much plastic, and I don't organize my trash the way it's supposed to, especially in New York City. Like, in in North Carolina, like, of course, there's, like, a, you know, the recycling and the, um, the regular trash but in new york city like they really are hell-bent on that shit like you have to have like the paper plastic everything and then i think some places like you'll get fined if you put it in the wrong container and they even have like a compost bin apparently i had a compost bin i didn't even know i have no clue but yeah if you know of anyone who wants to talk about sustainability or if you're interested in that, hearing that or hearing my take on it, let me know. I would love to do it in the future, but I don't want to continue on with another trend because I feel like I've already been talking so much. But yeah, that's all of my opinions about certain trends just because those are the two that really circulate the most um, in like my feed and you know the things that I watch on a day-to-day basis on social media. But anywho, I hope you guys learned something. Um, with all of my babbling and all of my nonsense, I was trying to make, I hope everything made sense. All of, like something made sense out of my nonsense. That's it. That's all I have to say. Anyway, I hope that you all are doing well. Please take care of yourself. Please take care of others. Um, And I hope to hear from you guys soon for my next episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to stay connected and learn more information, such as content about the next podcast, our future guests, and other important links that I've discussed in each episode, then check us out on Instagram at you underscore good podcast or email us at yougoodpod at gmail.com. We love DMs, so send us a message if you have any comments, questions, and concerns. Lastly, don't forget to be kind and ask yourself, are you good? Hello everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. I hope everyone is doing well. 
Um, currently, it is 11 o'clock at night. I am the type of person who definitely, like, I used to be a morning person. Like, I would wake up at, like, the ass crack of dawn. Um, and now that I've gotten older, I just cannot wake up past <laughs> earlier unless I'm forced to where I have to. Like, if there's money involved, I would definitely wake up before, like, 7 a.m. But recently, I've just noticed that, like, I'm now officially a night owl. Like, I just can't function so early in the day. So I kind of do all of my stuff I need to do later. It was really much of a struggle when I was in college, um, especially because I had a lot of morning classes. I thought, well, you know, if I get some of those classes out of the way, then I have more free time throughout the day. But my mistake is that I would sign myself up for really early classes. So it just, I felt like I was just putting myself in a more difficult situation than I needed to. Anyway, that's not even my point. Um, today, I don't know, like, I don't know if anyone has ever had those days where they just absolutely don't do anything. Like, there was nothing productive about my day, but yet I felt so tired from it. And I think that's honestly the depression me talking because, you know, if you guys know, like, the basic understanding of depression, there's so many things that kind of prevent you from... I wouldn't say being your best self, but like working at your highest level of pro uh, productivity. And that's how I felt like I, it felt so hard to get out of bed. Um, I had to force myself to go outside. I did accomplish one thing. I did clean up my room, which <sighs> if you guys also struggle with depression, you know, the definition of a depression, of a depression room. That's basically what my room was. I at one point just didn't really care. Um, well, two things, actually. My room's a mess because I just came back from house-sitting for two weeks, so I wasn't at home at all. But even with that, like, I came back and it was still, like, a mess. It's like, I'm the only one who's made this mess. And it's just because I just wasn't feeling motivated to, um, to clean it. And it's, like, sad because it's my space. It's my own doing. But yet I just felt so I wasn't in the right headspace to really do a deep clean. And I need to because um, I'm actually going back home to Charlotte in two weeks for a break. That's another thing that I'm like having to <laughs> focus on because life has just been so overwhelming for me. And I just feel like I just need a break. So I felt like it would be great to go back home. But besides the point, like it really made me the way that I felt today really made me feel like very alone you know, that's the depression talking of like feeling like I should be isolated. No one really cares, you know, like this, like I just started really like talking really negatively to myself and I was really struggling to figure out like a good segment that people would want to listen to. And even if three people listen to it, that's fine. But it made me realize how important it is to still continue the message or spread the mission the message I cannot speak today um of normalizing depression and anxiety and I I just feel like just because it's so it's such a it's such a normal part of my life now I don't really mind talking about it as much I think when I first started the journey of like being finally diagnosed with depression and anxiety, I was really afraid to let people know because I feel like when you say that you're depressed, a lot of people say like, think that you have like a, a huge red 
um, sign that says like extremely sad and like unstable and stuff like that. And although I have these emotions and I feel these ways most of the time, it doesn't mean that I'm not able to have a fulfilling life. It just means that I have to kind of keep an account of some things so that like some things that I need to do to keep on moving forward. And so that's what I wanted this episode to be about. I really wanted to discuss how my life has changed after being diagnosed with um, anxiety and depression and just some things I do every single day, things I'm aware of or try to be aware of to help manage my diagnosis. So I was officially diagnosed in 2018. I was like, I think I want to say 20, 21. I would say 20. I think I started my first year of RA, being an RA in college. And let me tell you, and I'm going to I'm gonna do a little brief background because I don't want this to be the main component of like this episode, but I, um, I always thought that I was like the kid in my family that was like untouched by mental illness. Um, I, mental illness runs in my family, like my, my mom and my sister, they have bipolar disorder. And then my dad was later diagnosed with ADHD and, um, you know, I think that they did really well in managing the things that they were dealt with, the cards that they were dealt with. And growing up, like the only thing I had to worry about was like allergy medicine. And I think I had like, well, I still have eczema and like just weird little stuff like that. Like I didn't have to take major pills or do all these crazy things to take care of my health. Like I was a pretty healthy person. Um, And it wasn't until like, it wasn't until college that I just got, I don't know, I, my behavior started to change and I felt really isolated. And it's weird because like now that I'm looking back at it, I can see the symptoms of anxiety even when I was younger. Like my mom, she always categorized me as like a uh, very anxious kid. Like I was always very super aware of other people and I was very shy and I didn't like to talk to strangers and I was very scared and skittish. Um, It wasn't too bad, but I would say like overall, I was a very anxious kid. It's just I, a lot of people just categorize me as being shy, not being anxious. And it wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until college that I realized that I was depressed. So I, it started off very small, you know what I mean? It started off with like not being interested in hobbies that once interest me, just being really sad. I think for me, how I describe depression is feeling a huge wave of grief hit me. And I've never really experienced true grief. I've never really dealt or lost anything. But for me, it felt like, it felt like, at the time, it I would categorize depression, and I know this is so, I, I feel like those who get it, get it, and those who don't, won't, but for me, I think of depression when I'm really feeling it, it's kind of like celebrating New Year's Eve, but you know that the next year will never come. I don't know if that makes any sense, it just, I, I just thought of it right now, but that's how it feels, it feels like the whole celebration behind it, like the feeling that you get where you're surrounded by friends and family. And it's like really sad, you know what I mean? It's like sad because like you're reminiscing on something that happened in the past, like the year before you moving, before you move into the next year. But for depression, I feel like it's like you, 
you're supposed to be looking forward towards the future or looking forward to the future, but it just never shows up. And that's how I felt. Like I, I think at one point I knew that something was really seriously wrong with me when I would cry in random places. I would cry in a supermarket. I would cry in Barnes and Nobles. I would cry in my room. And I, I would say I'm an, I'm a, I am a very sensitive, emotional person, but I've never really cried in front of people. I don't do that very often. And I just remember crying so much. And there was no reason, nothing prompted me to cry. I just felt so sad, like this grief has hit me. And I felt so alone. And I remember like thinking, okay, maybe like, I kind of went through the list of like, okay, what is going on? How can I fix it? So I started like changing stuff in my life. I started to not be on um, social media. I went off technology for a little bit because I thought that that was affecting me. I tried to get involved in things so that, you know, I wasn't feeling alone. At the time, I took a lot of online classes, which I can't really like, I couldn't really like leave it because I've already, you know, enrolled and it would cost me money if I if I left the classes. So I tried to attend a lot of social events to kind of like get me to interact with other people because I was already in a very isolating situation. Um, I tried to work out more often. I tried to eat healthier. Um, I was already seeing a therapist at the time, but I started seeing her like every single week instead of two every other week or two weeks or whatever. I tried to take multivitamins. Like I tried to do everything to basically better my health, but at the end of the day, it still didn't work. And I remember I went to my therapist one day, I went back home and um, I talked to her and I was like, hey, like, these are the things that I'm feeling. These are the symptoms. I don't know what's going on. I'm freaking out. It's scaring me. Like I'm crying in random places. Like it's, I'm really, really scared. And she sat me down and was like, I think you're depressed. And when I heard her say that to me, I was in such denial because I was like, I'm not depressed. Like in my mind, I think I was just very um, naive about depression. I mean, I knew things like, you know, bipolar disorder through my family, but I didn't really know depression. And it was like, it's kind of like, you know, you hear all these things, all these diagnoses, but diagnoses, all these different diagnoses. And then like when you actually experience it, it's like a whole, you see it in a whole new light, you know, now that it, it has affected you and your life, now you're like, oh my God, like, this is real. Like, it, it's scary. It's scary. It, it becomes, yeah, it becomes more realistic. And my biggest fear when being told that I had depression was taking medication because I knew I had to take medication. But for me at the time, like, I was, like, afraid to do things like, you know, like, I, I didn't even, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I was very scared to take medication. I was all about, like, being all natural and like we don't you know our body's a temple and like we don't want to mess with anything that will like destroy your body so I was really apprehensive to even try medication um and I was scared I was really really scared for no reason though um I felt like my life was already over once I heard that I had depression um and I remember that night I looked online and I looked up celebrities who have depression which is like all of them (laughs) 
And, like, I think I saw, like, I don't even know, like, some celebrity. I can't even remember the specifics. And I was like, okay, I think I'm fine because this celebrity has depression. So that means I'm okay. And it's like, what? Anyway, I was... 20 which I mean that was like four years ago so it's not that long but I was just really really naive and I um yeah it was a really hard pill for me to swallow um overall I think it took a lot of adjusting um I was um I was really like trying to figure out a good schedule for me to take medication and things like that and at the time I was starting a new job I was moving into a new space um as an RA and it was just, it was a lot of changes and it was really, really scary. And for me, I I think that year I told myself that, you know, this is you. This is the real you. You have to acknowledge that you are someone who deals with depression and it's not something that you should be ashamed of. So for me, I think that year I took an oath, a personal oath to be really true and very real because all of my life I realized, and sometimes I still feel like that too, is I feel like no one, if I showed the real or the true self or my true self to other people that no one would like it. So I would often create a different version of myself that people liked. Um, I would do that with dating. I would do that with friends. Um, And it wasn't until I would say maybe, and it's so unfortunate, I would say maybe a year ago, a year ago that I literally was like, you have to stop lying to people. Um, At the time that I was dealing with, you know, the newfound world of depression, I did take that oath to be real and true. But I still have moments where like, I feel like no one really would like the real me. And so I just lie my way through, which is really sad. Um, I think, especially when you feel, I think the reason and this is not even depressed, is it depression related? I feel like it's childhood trauma related. I was bullied like really, really bad when I was younger, especially when I moved from New York to North Carolina. So I basically had to be a different person in order to not be bullied and to survive. Uh, Because when I first moved, I was my true authentic self and no one liked me. And so I just... I felt like because that was so challenging and such a struggle for me that it just gave me the the green light to just change my identity. And for me, like it, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has affected everything. And um, I think it's also affected with my depression too, because, you know, before I was diagnosed, I was often trying to put on this certain facade to show people that I wasn't sad, that I wasn't miserable, like I just felt really alone, but I didn't want people to know that. I wanted people to think that my life was great, that I was doing great, when in actuality, I was really, really struggling. Um, And yeah, it wasn't until, yeah, that depression diagnosis where I was like, oh, it all makes sense now, right? Um, So that's my little quick spiel of (laughs) my life. Um, I have my computer in front of me, so if you guys hear some little clicks, don't be afraid. Um, I had to write down what I wanted to say, not like word for word, but just kind of like making sure I hit all the points because um, I wanted to make sure that I do this right. Um, So what I really wanted to discuss in this episode was, yeah, how my life has changed um, due to my depression and my anxiety and things that I have to do every single day to help manage them or just kind of be on top of it. So Um, I have about, I have five things here. 
I'm going to try to go as slowly as I can so it makes sense. So the first one I thought of is giving myself more grace. Like I said before, I before I was diagnosed with depression, I honestly would I I would say that I I didn't really like myself. I felt like the true version of myself was not someone that anyone would like. And so I kind of took bits and pieces of things that people would like, you know, um, society, like, you know, what society wants, you know, I, I, I think at one point, like, I was trying to be like the perfect girlfriend. Um, so I would like look up, which is like very psychological and very diabolical. But I think it's honestly a coping mechanism of like, you don't want to be alone with yourself. And you feel like you don't like yourself um, so much that you rather be someone else. And that's how it was for me. I think I, for a long time, I really hated myself. Um, I would say really terrible things to myself, which I think I mentioned in another podcast episode of mine, but really, really bad stuff. I remember one time I did something, I made like the smallest mistake, right? It didn't hurt anyone. It was just very, very small. And I remember I spent 10 minutes talking shit to myself. Like, not like you suck. Like, it was more like you suck because no one likes you. No one will ever love you. Like, shit like that. And it's like, if I were to say that to someone else, my God, they would slap the shit out of me. Like, it was so bad. But it's the reason why I wanted to be like someone else is because... I hated myself so much and it wasn't like I always have hated myself I think like for maybe about three years I just was not happy about myself I didn't find any qualities that I inhibited that were great like I just felt like I was just a basic average person I was just like everyone else I felt like there was nothing original nothing unique about myself and I just I felt like no one would want I felt like I felt like I was like like just one of those like cookie cutter cookies basically right you know I'm dressed the way that everyone wants I am looking the way that everyone wants but I I just wasn't happy and I felt like me pretending to be someone that I wasn't was just a way to hide and a way to escape that pain and so why I say giving myself more grace is something that I do every single day is because with depression there's going to be moments where you don't like yourself. There's going to be moments where that depression version of you is going to say some really mean stuff to you. And you have to understand that that is the depression talking, not the real you talking. I view depression now as like this weird, um, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. Like it's not a friend, but it's still a part of you. Maybe like a long lost relative that maybe was in your family for a little bit or I don't know like it's connected to you it is you right we don't want to say that depression is not you it is you but I think it's like this twisted version of you it is the the version that lies it's the version that you know wants you to fail um it's the version that wants you to feel a certain way in a negative way or whatever I would say like it's not a friend, it's not a foe. I think you can learn a lot with depression, but it's not you. And for me, I have to understand that like 
I have to kind of keep it at, at a distance, but also be completely aware of it. It's kind of, I, I would describe it as like, if I could describe depression as a saying, I would maybe say that it's like, you know, keep your enemies closer type of thing. Like you don't want to just completely ignore it because when you ignore something, it's just going to turn into a bigger problem. I would say that it's something that you have to be aware of, but something that you cannot base your whole life on. You know, you can't just always be thinking about depression you. You have to live your life to the best way that you can. And if depression you comes around, you have to say, hey, I acknowledge that you're here, um, but you are not going to control my life. And so for me, that is my version of giving myself grace is like saying like there are moments that you are going to have a really hard time, but it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you're having a difficult moment right now, but it doesn't mean that just because you're having a difficult moment does not mean that you have a difficult life. And it doesn't mean that, you know, your life is a failure, yada, 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 things like that. Um, so that's number one. I try to give myself as much grace as I can every single day with my depression and with my anxiety too, because I think both of them go very hand in hand. Um, the second one is forcing myself to go out more. Um, again, like I said, Depression really forces me to isolate myself. It makes me feel like no one really cares about me. No one loves me. If I were to be gone, you know, no one would care. I constantly, and I know this is like so morbid, trigger warning. If you are someone who does not like to talk about death, we might talk about it on this episode. So I might have to put a trigger warning in the beginning of this episode. But um, one thing about people who um, who go through depression is you're more likely to think about death. You're more likely to think about how you'll die because it's a common thing that a lot of people with depression think of. Um, for me, it that was really hard for me to feel and for me to even say because I think when people say, oh, I feel like I don't want to be here anymore, it's like, again, this huge red flag. It's like, oh my God, like you're so unstable. Oh my God. But it's not, I would say like, yes, I think when you're really struggling and like you really feel like there's no way out, I think that, you know, that is a great time to find some help, whether that is through, you know, mental health services, going to a hospital, admitting yourself, things like that. But um, for me, I've noticed that it's, it's definitely like an eye-opener. It makes me kind of appreciate life just a little bit more. Sometimes, sometimes though, because there's other times where I'm like, I literally just can't figure out what to do. Um, like, I feel like there's no hope. There's nothing I can move on to or move forward. Um, and I don't even know where I was going. I started, I started thinking about how I feel about death. Um, I don't know why I started talking about that, but long story short, um, yeah, that's what I was saying about like isolation and like, you know, it depression makes me feel like no one cares. And so I've I've noticed that when I go outside, I feel a little bit better. And I think it's because I'm forcing myself in a situation where I'm having to interact with people. And it's great because New York City, like you see everyone you know, you're always kind of like involved in something <laughs> like you can go to a park and like probably run into like, you know, a festival or something like that, which is really, really nice, um, which I mean, New York is great for that. But also New York is also a, a very big place where you could still feel depressed, even if you're amongst a lot of people. 
Uh, I think it kind of depends on how you feel and what environment works best for you. But I have noticed significantly that when I'm outside, especially longer for 30 minutes, I feel much better. Like yesterday, oh my God, I felt so depressed. I did not want to leave. Um, I'd rather just stay in my bed and sleep and watch cartoons. Even as a 24-year-old, I still watch cartoons. But I force myself to go outside. And I force myself to go outside with an agenda. That's one of the things I've noticed really help. Because when you go outside, it's like you're going outside. But if you're forced to do something like pick up medication or run an errand, at least it gives you some some purpose and some momentum um, to keep on moving forward. Because if, let's say, you go out and you run an errand, maybe you have to do something else and it leads you to stay out more. So yesterday, what I did was I realized that I hadn't had lunch yet. And so instead of having lunch at home, I packed myself a little snack. I uh, brought a little blanket and I charged my phone, brought my um, wireless charger and my headphones. And I, I was like, okay, I'm not like rich girl right now. So I can't just like drop, you know, money on meals and stuff like, you know, we got to save our money so what I did was I I bought something that would make me happy and so in the moment it was like a really nice drink so I got boba and I just sat in a park and I watched tv (laughs) sat in a park and I watched tv like I could have done that shit at home but I wanted to be outside and I yeah I watched what did I watch I watched Bob's Burgers iconic love the show I ate chicken fried rice and I had apples and string cheese and my boba and at one point I think it was just so nice I like sat there I laid down and I I laid down for like 20 minutes and it was so nice and I loved it and I felt so energized and like although it seems so small like I think really going outside being amongst nature or just like being around other people is really really beneficial because it makes you realize that you're not alone in this world, right? So that's something I have to do every single day. So like when I've noticed that I haven't been outside, like my rule is you have to go outside for every two days you have to go outside. So like today I did go outside for like 20 minutes to buy an ice cream cone. There's a lot of ice cream trucks near me. So I splurged and after dinner that I made, I got ice cream and that was the best fucking $4 of my life. It was really good. Um, The other day, yeah, yesterday I went to the park. So I try to go outside as much as I can. But my rule is like, if you've been inside for two days, the third day you have to go outside. That's just the rule. Um, Because, you know, shit happens, you know, especially if it being so hot outside. My God, like I'm not going to try to stay out there and like have a heat stroke. But my thing is like, I, I try to get as much fresh air as I could or as I can. So whether that's like going outside in the morning or the afternoon or maybe when it cools down in the evening, like I just got to do what I got to do. So number two is forcing myself to go outside. If you're depressed and you're having really depressive moments, just go outside. I, I don't even care if it's for 10 minutes, just go outside. It will do more wonders than you think it will. Okay, the third one is um, being consistent with my medication and my routines. So with mental illness, especially severe mental illness, at some point you will have to take medication. I think, you know, there's this whole debacle of like whether or not you should be taking medication or whether or not you should go natural and use natural supplements. 
whatever works for your body, whatever works with your lifestyle, do whatever the hell makes you happy. If smoking weed helps you, then my, by God, like just, just, just do it. You know what I mean? Um, but for me, medication helps. And medication, again, was like something like a huge pill to swallow, literally, um, that I had to kind of like realize and I had to kind of like wrap my head around, which is actually really funny because personally, I cannot take pills. Um, everyone knows in my personal life that uh, there's a reason why I don't take pills. I'm not going to disclose that now because it's very personal. Um, but long story short, something had happened to me in the past and it has prevented me from taking pills. So now I take my, um, my depressant, my antidepressants on liquid and, um, I have to take it every single day and it sucks because with medication, there's a lot of precautions. Like you can't drink. I have to eat on an empty or not eat on an empty stomach. Don't ever take your medication on an empty stomach, especially something as serious as an antidepressant. Um, I have to eat on, on a full stomach. Um, I know when I first took my medication, it affected my sleep. Um, there was a lot of things, like a lot of lifestyle changes that I had to accommodate while taking my medication. And there are some days where it really fucking sucks. Like, I really don't want to take my medication. One thing I really hate about taking medication is how reliable you are or how reliant you are on your pharmacy. Um, I experienced my first medication withdrawal when I first moved here. It was in October. Um, I had gotten a new doctor and she filled in the prescription later. I tried calling her and contacting her. And this has actually happened the second time earlier this week. Um, I went through a two-day withdrawal, but the first time it happened, I went through a five-day withdrawal. And honestly, after if I didn't have my medication for another day, I'd probably admit myself to a hospital. And that was really, really scary, you know? Um, I, If you guys don't know, like a medication withdrawal is like when, you know, you've, been, you've become so reliant on a particular medication that when you no longer take it, your body kind of gets affected. It's kind of like a, like an alcohol withdrawal. Um, so I started having the shakes. Um, for me, and I've noticed while also doing research with antidepressants is when you don't take it, um, you know, as consistent or you just skip a day or something like that, you start to feel like you're drunk, right? without really drinking. So I couldn't walk in a straight line. I had to stay indoors all day. I was sleeping pretty much all day because that's how bad I felt. I felt like I had the worst hangover ever. I had the shakes, I was throwing up. Um, what else happened? I couldn't eat. Um, I was extremely dehydrated. It was really, really bad. And it was all because my doctor, um, sent in the prescription later and then when I tried to contact her about it she was like MIA right and the pharmacy that I selected they didn't have the liquid version right because I can't take pills and the liquid version is like really rare like you have to order it in so even though my doctor sent them the prescription it took them like two business days for them to even get it on their premise so it was it was crazy um and that was really really scary and it made me realize like how dependent i am on this medication like this is really like my bread and butter of the day this is how i survive and like you might think that it won't affect you but 
to be quite honest with you, like when I wasn't taking that medication, I had really bad suicidal thoughts. Um, like it's like it went from zero to 100 real fucking quick. And that was the most scariest part of like, yeah, I just became so dependent on it. And there's some days where I'm like, OK, it won't affect me. I think I'll be fine. But in in reality, like it really does shape how I live my life. I've also learned recently that people who take uh, SSRIs, which is the type or the form of uh, antidepressants, um, they're actually more prone during the summertime to be more dehydrated based on the ingredients in the depressant. So I take a generic version of Celexa, which is called Citalopram. And I realized that like, I'm more prone to being dehydrated. Like beginning of summer, I think at one point I almost collapsed um, because I wasn't drinking enough water. And I realized like, there's so many things that you learn about yourself when you're on medication. Um, and I feel really bad for those who are on like multiple things of medication. Thankfully, my antidepressants helps with my anxiety and my depression. But like my sister, right? She takes medication for anxiety and um, for like her ADHD and bipolar disorder. And it's like, it's so crazy because when you're off those medications, it you start to understand again how reliant your mind is on on these drugs. Um, and it's scary. It's really, really scary that like your life can just change dramatically if you don't have access to it. That's why I think access to healthcare, proper healthcare is super important. And it's just so sad that like, not to get on like my, my social work high horse, but like, it's so sad that like pharmaceutical companies like increase the prices, make it really, really hard for people to get fair and, um, adequate medication like I remember my mom one time they raised her prescription to, and like her pills cost I would I would say maybe like two hundred dollars and I was like that's crazy like especially those who don't have insurance oh my god like how can you survive like it's so scary and you know like those pills that form of medication can be life or death you know if i didn't have access to that my medication like i said i would have admitted myself to a hospital like i could have died like it was just it's really really scary to go through that so i do try to be really consistent with my medication even though i hate taking it i hate fucking taking that medication it's like it's like taking the worst shot of your life which i'm kind of used to I I know some people are going to like literally gag when I say this, but because I couldn't take pills for a long time, I'm the type of person who actually chews pills, like pain reliever pills, like ibuprofen. I've chewed Aleve. I've chewed Advil. I know you guys are cringing. I know I can feel it. I can sense it. It's disgusting. You, Advil is not bad. Advil's coating is actually not that bad, but Aleve, oh my god, every time I, I chew it, I just want to like shoot myself, like it's so bad, um, so yeah, imagine taking liquid, liquid antidepressants, it's disgusting, um, anyway, let me stop talking about that, um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as like being consistent with my medication, I'm also very consistent with my routines, you know, my routine of like eating before I take my medication, going to bed at a certain time, um, I just try to be really cognizant of like my time and how it relates to my medication because time is also really important too. I think they recommend that you take medication at the same time every single day or it's going to mess you up. So I, t I actually have an alarm on my phone for 10 o'clock every single night. Um, even if I'm at the club, 
Well, actually, if I'm out and I know I'm going to be drinking, I actually do not take my medication, which I do not recommend. I'm just so afraid of mixing the two that I rather just choose either one or the other. It's either I take my medication, not drink, or I don't take my medication and I drink. Normally, if I don't take my medication for one day, it's okay, but I do take the medication right after the next day because we're not trying to go two days without medication. That's a big no-no. Um, so I would not recommend you doing that. I would really consult with the doctor. You should, but I do know that you should not be mixing those two together. No alcohol and no antidepressant. That's a big no-no. So I'd rather just choose one or the other. Um, the next thing that's on my list is, um, oh, taking more breaks than usual. Um, I feel like this is mostly with anxiety. I think it also falls in line with the first one that I said, like giving yourself more grace. Um, for me, I I think like, again, like in the beginning of getting this diagnosis, I was really, I didn't, I didn't want to believe that I was suffering from mental illness. You know, I kind of thought it was like a joke. I thought it was something that could definitely be, I think any sort of mental illness can be manageable if you, you know, go through it properly but I thought of it as something that could just be gone from my life not realizing that this will probably be something that I have to deal with for the rest of my life and so for me like before I got diagnosed I was I would say I was a very active person I was always on the go for me also I've noticed that I have high functioning anxiety so like anxiety is this normal behavior that everyone has right Everyone feels anxiety at some point in their life, but if it's to the point where it's so debilitating and so it's preventing you from doing the things that you need to do every single day, then that is a type of anxiety that you need to worry about. And for me, anytime I was going through an anxious moment, it wasn't like I slowed down. It wasn't like it really like caused me to stop. It kind of forced me to keep on going. So like even though I might be performing well, like in a professional setting or a personal setting, I still might be going through anxiety. Like one example I have is, um, well, actually, is that a good example? No, because I did break down. Um, but I remember, I think one time I had an anxiety attack instead of me sitting down and breathing through it and just trying to figure out like, how can I, you know, calm myself down? I ended up like shopping. I was like shopping and I went to the store and I went to a restaurant and I was, you know, taking phone calls and then I had a meeting and I was like, I, I didn't even know how to stop. And that's how I kind of view my anxiety sometimes. Like I, anxiety I think is supposed to sometimes like hinder you. But for me as a high functioning person, I, it, it, I just couldn't stop, you know what I mean? And so for me, I have to kind of tell myself to take more breaks. Um, to understand, again, to give myself more grace. Like today, even though I did absolutely nothing, I still took that break to calm down. I've noticed that like, especially when you've been dealing with anxiety and depression for such a long time, you kind of know like your cues, you kind of know when to stop and when to go. For me, I realized that my depression is, I have a lot of triggers that, you know, affect my depression, but I get mostly triggered by my depression at night. That's why it's really important for me to go go to bed at a certain time because the longer I stay up, the more I'm in my thoughts and the more depressed I become. And that causes me not to go to sleep. And also causes my anxiety to spike up too. 
I've also noticed that anxiety kind of sneaks up on me throughout the day, probably between like two or three. And so there's moments where I'll take naps. I'll take like, I kind of view them as like anxiety naps. It's because I get so overwhelmed by anxiety. It makes my body physically weak that I have to lay down. And so sometimes I'm not even really sleeping. I'm just kind of thinking and trying to like calm myself down. Um, like today, like I was moving and I was, um, I was cleaning up my room. Like it, it really doesn't require much. And I felt so anxious. I felt so overwhelmed. And I had to literally stop and say, okay, right? You, you, you know, you're cleaning up your room. That's a great job. You're doing so well, Maya. But you don't have to clean up the whole thing today. Just start with a section or finish up the section that you've already started and stop. You need to breathe. You need to calm down. Have you had water? Have you eaten? I think with um, anxiety especially, it really forces you to kind of check up on yourself um, because when you're when you're getting when you're in a anxious moment or when you're dealing with like a panic attack, it really forces you to focus on like the necessities. Um, one thing I I think I taught I did a seminar when I was in an RA about anxiety and how it affects your body, but I kind of view it as going like imagine your body as a car and going to like um. Oh my God, can I not remember what people, like the auto repair place? Oh my God, <laughs> you could tell I have, I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> the auto repair place, that's what I'm going to call it. I know that there's another word and I just can't remember. <laughs> my dad's obsessed with cars and if he hears this, he's going to be like, you're crazy. How do you not know this? But my mind is just going blank right now. Anyway, so like, let's say your body's a car. And you're going to the auto repair place. <laughs> anyway. And they tell you all these things that are wrong with your body. That is what anxiety is kind of doing to you. It's kind of telling you, okay, it's forcing you to stop, to think, to really question uh, and make sure that your body, that your car is doing okay. So it's asking, like, have you had enough water? Is that why you're feeling anxious? Maybe you're dehydrated. Are you eating? Maybe you feel the way that you feel because you're not eating enough or you haven't eaten anything. Um, maybe you might need to rest. Maybe you you feel so overwhelmed by the work that you're doing, you might need to take a break. It's kind of like, I, I would say anxiety. I mean, anxiety basically is preparing you for um like a fight I think it's you know have you guys ever heard of like the fight flight and freeze right anxiety is kind of like what prepares you before you go into battle before you face something really difficult but you know I think oh god let me backtrack okay so I read this thing like years ago and it was saying how anxiety like you know as humans we've evolved and things like that and you know, in the past years ago, eons ago, whatever you want to call it, you know, when we were living as cave people, there were a lot of dangers in life, right? You know, animals and climate and, you know, security and things like that. And so the anxiety that we felt back then was real because those things could really make or break. It was life or death. But as we've evolved and things have gotten better and, you know, we're on medication, we're more civilized and things like that, the anxiety that you may feel 
is kind of like out of proportion. So you might feel the anxiety of like you being shot or you being killed or something like that. When in actuality, you're just feeling nervous about a date. Like for me, I have to tell myself that when I feel anxious, I have to I have to tell myself that like you're okay, you're safe. There's nothing threatening your life because that's what it feels like when I'm going through in a panic attack or an anxious or anxiety moment. It feels like someone's hunting me down. Like it feels like the threat is bigger than it actually is. But in reality, our anxiety is just a common emotion that all of us feel to help us prepare for things that you know we may not expect right so the next time that you are anxious about something just kind of tell yourself or remind yourself that it is a way for your body to protect itself it's a very good thing you know if you aren't anxious about something maybe it's not something that you should be doing or I don't know how to describe it. it's kind of like when people say like when you go on a first date and they say oh well if you're nervous then you're you're going to be fine. But if you're not nervous, it means that you didn't care. I think it's just a normal response. We have to kind of normalize anxiety. Um, and so for me, I think, um, yeah, anxiety is a good thing. I think, you know, there are times where anxiety can get very overwhelming and you do have to do those like little checks and balances and making sure that like it stays in check. Um, because again, when it becomes so overwhelming, it can really hinder and affect your life significantly. I'll probably make that another episode, like anxiety while dating, because Lord have mercy, I have a lot of stories to tell you about that. But just kind of being aware of like your social cues, the triggers that, you know, affect your anxiety and depression, and just being aware of that. Sometimes you have to make really big changes in your life in order to manage it. It sucks, especially when you're so used to a certain lifestyle. But once you get a hang of it, I think it would be totally fine. I think it would be great. And I think it would be super beneficial for your for your overall well-being. I know I hope that made sense in some shape or form. It made sense in my mind, but we'll see. We'll see. Some people are gonna be like, this girl is talking nonsense, but it is what it is. Um so the last one is um things um oh yeah the last one on my list that I'm I try to be aware of every single day is constantly challenging my path of thought or my way of thinking so like I said anxiety and depression really can affect your life in so many ways it can make you believe that your life is a certain way or uh, for me, I think especially in terms of depression, it may lie to you sometimes. It may say some things to you that you may think are real, like no one loves you, no one cares about you, you know, you have no friends, you're better off alone, things like that. Things that seem very normal. But for me, I kind of think of depression as someone who knows all of your worst secrets and as someone who uses those secrets as ambush. You know what I mean? Like it's not saying, what I want to say is like, Depression you is a lie. I think it's a distortion. It's not like they're it's not like they're saying completely inaccurate stuff. Like there are times where I feel like I am better off alone or no one cares about me. But it's kind of like taking your insecurities and amplifying them. And once you kind of understand that that's what depression is, you start to realize like that's not right. That's not true. There are people out there who love me. There are, you know, I would never be better off alone. You know, people would actually care about me if something went wrong or something like that. So what I try to do every single day is being aware of those cognitive distortions. So when your mind, when your depression is talking, 
you know, really negatively and lying to you, I would categorize that as cognitive distortions. It's basically a fancy word of your mind playing tricks on you. And once you're aware of the common distortions that people go through and how it may affect your depression, anxiety, you have a better upper hand. It's kind of like knowing the cognitive distortions is kind of like you knowing the game plan of the play. Um, you know, I guess in terms of football or whatever sport you want to play. I, I don't know. I'm not really a big fan of sports. But what I'm trying to say is like when you are aware of the cognitive distortions that you are thinking and that you are um, kind of involving yourself in, it gives you higher ground to tackle your depression and to say that that's not true, um, to take better control of it. So when I was in my master's program, I took a class on cognitive behavioral therapy, which I have already looked that up for you guys, for some of you guys who do not know. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which also stands for CBT, is a short-term form of behavioral treatment. It helps people problem solve. CBT also reveals relationships between beliefs, thoughts, and feelings. So if you guys look up CBT, this is another like therapeutic um, reference or therapeutic, um, yeah, I would say reference or just whatever. Again, I, I do want to say this. I'm not a therapist. Do not view this as a form of therapy. Please use this with a grain of salt. If you've never heard of CBT and you are actually in therapy, you might want to discuss it with your therapist. Like, do the research. Don't be a fool and just listen to what I'm saying and just go on in your life and yada, yada, yada. Like, actually take time to look this up because it can be very, very beneficial. I'm just giving you guys some, some tips, some tricks, um, some things that you can be aware of. But I would definitely try to do the research first. I already know about this because I already went to school for this. But if you guys do not know about this, please look it up. Please be educated because this is your mental health. Okay, I said my warning. Anyway, so yeah, CBT is basically, um, it looks at the relationships between uh, beliefs, thoughts, and feelings. So when you look up the CBT model, it's basically like a triangle. So at the tip of each triangle is the, th the big three, like I just said, beliefs, thoughts, and feelings. And basically they this theory um indicates or shows that the things that you believe and the thoughts you have and the feelings you have are strongly connected so one example that they always make us do is let's say i'm trying to think of like the most common thing okay let's say you're in like elementary school or whatever right and you have like these besties these best friends right um, let's say one day you're on a playground and you see two of your friends. It's like you guys are three, three best friends. So it's like you and two other people. Anyway, so you see your two best friends talking amongst each other. And when you start to approach them, you, they just stop talking. So maybe in that moment you might believe, why did they stop talking when I showed up? Are they talking about me? Right? So that's your belief. Then your thoughts are oh, I must have done something that they don't like, or maybe they don't like me. Um, you know, maybe they, yeah, they don't like me. That's, that's one of the thoughts, right? Because you thought that way, you might feel really sad. You might start to isolate yourself, right? You might start to do certain things because that's what you believe that they believe, if that makes any sense. I know some of you guys are very visual. If you have to write this down, that's fine, or look up examples, do as you will. But in reality, they could 
just be talking about I don't know maybe one of the girls or one of the guys or one of the person's problem like it it could have been a conversation that didn't even involve you but because that was something that you believed or something that you thought it affected how you felt and the way that you um the way that you interacted with these people right so it kind of makes us it kind of goes off on this idea that our mind is kind of our worst enemy sometimes that the way that you think um or the things that you think really has a huge effect on how you live your life i think for me uh, whenever i think about cbt i think about my grandmother so my grandmother when i was younger she was always saying things like cancel 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 don't you know don't say no don't say you can't always say that you can or that you will and i always hated whenever she said that because she always said like you never talk negative to yourself you never talk negative about things that you're going to do because it will happen And I just thought it was so ridiculous, but it wasn't until I got older that I tried to be more positive that I realized that when you are positive, you're letting, you're asking for light to come to you, right? And when you are negative, you are pushing away all that's good because of the things that you think. And with the whole CBT and like what it, you know, aligns with, it kind of makes sense, you know, when you are thinking negative things, when you believe negative things, you're going to act negatively, right? Versus if you are thinking positively, if you're acting positively or feeling bo- positively, it's all going to go hand in hand, right? So with CBT, especially in lines with depression, it really works significantly because it really forces you to think like, especially with with moments in our life. So depression and anxiety, they could just be a diagnosis, but when you add certain um, certain moments or certain triggers or things like that, that's when you get to see the depression and the, the anxiety shine, right? So let's say, for instance, like um, one moment, right? Um, let's say I feel um, like I lost my job, right? That is just a standard moment in time, right? But because of me having my depression and feeling the things that I feel, I might think that I lost my job because I'm not a good person or things like that. Or, you know, no one ever wants to, wants me to work there, yada, yada, yada. I'm taking such a normal moment in everyone's life and making it a personal thing due to my depression, right? So with cognitive, so it's actually called cognitive distortions. Um, there's many of them that we kind of need to be aware of. So things that we need to understand that we may sometimes uh, do or think um, that can really hinder our ourselves to being better if that makes any sense so enough of my rambling I kind of hope it made sense but the first one the most common these are common cognitive distortions that a lot of people face not just with depression anxiety I think it's just common things little common mind tricks that our brain plays on us to kind of I don't know, like force us to not see the real thing. I I kind of view it as just like a veil and these distortions. And when you're finally aware of it, you're kind of, um, you know, kind of like undoing or unraveling the veil. So the first one is the all or nothing thinking. So it's defined as viewing situations on one extreme or another instead of the continuum. So an example of the all or nothing thinking is if my child does bad things, it's because I'm a bad parent, right? So with me, I've thought this way, right? With my depression. So sometimes I might think, um, 
Hmm. That's a very good question. I'm trying to think of examples now. Um, I can't even think of examples. Lord have mercy. Um, okay, so for the last one, my list is constantly challenging my path of thought. I think that this is very important for me because with anxiety and depression, it really kind of puts me in a perspective that hinders my true self. Um, with depression, like I said, that sometimes it has a tendency of lying to you. You know, it's kind of like your worst enemy. They know all of your secrets and they try to do things to prevent you from being your best self. Um, for me, I kind of describe depression, obviously, as like the low version of yourself and anxiety is like the scared high version of yourself. Like anxiety is more like someone once told me, which was probably the best thing I've ever heard in my life. But anxiety, when you are anxious, you're living in the future. And when you're depressed, you're living in the past. They're very much commonly known as the highs and lows, I would think, of mental illness. Um, and when you're in those highs and lows, you're not steady. You're not living in the reality. You're, li you're living either in the past or in the future. And ideally, you should be living in reality, living with, with the now, being current, being mindful, instead of kind of forcing yourself or focusing on something that has not happened or something that's already happened, right? So um, when I try to challenge my path of thinking or my way of thinking, I try to be aware of the cognitive distortions that I am constantly engaging in. So cognitive distortions are just a fancy way of saying like your mind, or it's a fancy way of saying mind tricks, right? It's just ways that our brain plays tricks on us. And everyone deals with cognitive distortions. I kind of view it as like, yeah, like little games that your mind plays with you. And you don't have to deal with depression or anxiety or mental illness or whatever to deal with this. Everyone who has a brain can deal with my, with, with cognitive distortions. Um, before I go into the definition of it, I do want to say and give this very big fair warning that I am not a therapist. I don't want you guys to listen to this and say, oh my God. Maya told me to do this and this and this. I did not say that. I would say, especially for something as big as this, if you have a relationship with a therapist, please talk to them about it, especially when I go into other things that kind of go along with cognitive distortions. But if you don't know, look it up. You know, I feel like if it's really worth your time, it's if it's really beneficial for your health, you should probably do your research and not just like, trust me. You know, I would say like, I don't want you to, I don't want to say like not trust me because it's like, why are you listening to this podcast? But I would just say like, look it up first before you start making big monumental changes in your life, right? Anyway, so with cognitive distortions, um, they're basically, um, yeah, I, let me actually look up the real definition of it because I have my version of it um, and I want to make sure I'm accurate. Because I don't want to give you guys the wrong information. So cognitive distortions are ways of thinking that can often be incorrect or negatively based, right? So for instance, I would say good cognitive distortion is, um, oh, one common one, which I'm like, oh, we got to stop doing this, is mind reading. So cognitive distortion of mind reading, I actually have it right here in front of me, thank God, is believing that you know what other people are thinking. 
So like one common one that is actually listed here, these are uh, cognitive distortion examples I got when I was in my master's program. I took a class on CBT, which I'll kind of define in a second. But mind reading distortions is believing like, yeah, that you know what other people are thinking without them even telling you this. Like, you're not a mind reader, you're not a psychic. Like, how can you know what people are thinking? Anyway, so an example of mind reading is a sentence like, my house was dirty when my friends came over, so now they think I'm a slob. In what way did they think that you're a slob? They never, did they say that they, that you were a slob? Did they, did you hear that they said that you were a slob? Just because you think that they just because you think a certain way does not mean that everyone thinks a certain way. Um, one common thing that I think I think everyone deals with and that goes in line with mind reading is believing like everyone hates you. I've heard so many people say like, when I go outside and I'm around other people, um, people look at me and I feel like they hate me already. How would you know that? Like sometimes I have to ask myself that. Like even with common things like you know, how I think people feel about me, um, like the way that I'm working, like just comment, like next time you go out and you're just thinking about just people in general, ask yourself, is that a mind reading statement? Like, are you really believing that these people have these thoughts about you? It's a mind reading statement if you have not heard them say that, if you did not see them do that or it goes in line with the message, right? So like, let's say you think that everyone hates you, right? Did someone tell you that they hate you? Did someone's attitude or someone's behavior or whatever say that, like show off that they hate you? If they didn't do any of those things, if you didn't hear physically that that person hates you, then that, that person doesn't hate you. You can't assume it. I mean, assuming makes an ass out of you and me, you know, like that is the definition of mind reading. Like, I just feel like that's so common. And once you kind of understand that, especially when it comes with depression, you know, with depression, it makes us feel like no one likes us. Everyone hates us. But it's like, did anyone say that? You're starting to now isolate and push yourself from friends and family because you think or you believe that someone has said this thing or believes this thing when in actuality, Maybe they haven't been talking to you because they're doing something in their own life. Maybe they're depressed too. You know what I mean? So that's one cognitive distortion to be super aware of. Um, the second one I think is very common is, um, I can't even pronounce this word. Castra, ca mm. I'm just going to give the definition. I love how I can't even read. <laughs> Basically, uh, one cognitive distortion I think is very common amongst a lot of people is predicting only negative outcomes for the future. So for instance, uh, you might say, if I fail my test, my life will be over. I think that also kind of goes in line with the whole not living in the present. You believe that something is going to happen when in actuality, you don't even know what the future entails. You could fail a test, but nothing would happen. You know what I mean? How will you know something like that would happen? I think one way to combat that type of cognitive distortion is kind of visualizing what might happen if something, if you took that action, right? So one of my favorite things I, I once taught, because um, I did therapy with kids and I had one kid who was really scared about 
um, telling her teacher something about her exam. She felt like she wasn't getting a fair grade and she wanted to talk to her teacher about like why she didn't get the grade that she expected. And when I told her, I said like, are you gonna tell him? You know what I mean? Like trying to help her through the steps of it. She said that she was afraid to talk to her teacher because she was afraid that something bad would happen. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, you know, I'm afraid that he's going to yell at me and this and this and this. So what I did to kind of help her alleviate her fear, her anxiety, is to think of all the possible um, outcomes to this action. So I said, you know, imagine you go into school tomorrow and you talk to your teacher privately and you ask him, you know, why is my grade looking like this? What do you think will happen? And so we basically created a whole list, right? So some things were, she said that he was going to yell at her, okay? And it was funny because at the end, she had all these different outcomes, these different outcomes that she thought was going to happen. Like she thought like she was going to be hit, you know, someone was, you know, the teacher was going to yell at her, you know, chairs were going to be thrown. And it wasn't until we, we looked at the full list that we realized that she was blowing everything out of proportions, that actually maybe maybe two or three outcomes might happen, but in actuality, it wasn't anything damaging. She wasn't going to get hurt. She might get her feelings hurt, but it wasn't like it was so detrimental. And I think like that is a great way to combat that type of behavior because when we believe that, that there's only negative outcomes, it's kind of like when you like you attract negativity with negativity. When you believe that only negative things will happen, nine times out of 10, it will happen. You know what I mean? Um, And so when you kind of look at those situations, um, like, I don't know, like if you fail your test, right? And you say like, you think of options that are also positive, something positive might come out of it. It's all in the way that you think. What I wanted to say before, or what I was planning to say when I was talking about cognitive distortions is how it's actually a form of CBT. So CBT, if you guys are not aware of it, CBT is basically a, um, it stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a short-term form of behavioral treatment and helps people uh, problem solve. And it also reveals the relationship between beliefs, thoughts, and feelings and how those behaviors will follow. So if you guys look up CBT, there's most commonly a thing called CBT triangle. So it's basically a triangle and at each point is thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And what they say is that everything, thoughts, feel, your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are extremely connected. You may not think that they're connected, but they are. One example I like to give in terms of how to demonstrate how it is connected is, let's say... Um, I don't know. I feel like everyone's kind of dealt with this moment where let's say you um you have two friends, right? So it's kind of like the three of you guys, right? And one day you're approaching your two friends and you realize that they're talking, right? And so as you approach them, get closer to them, they stop talking. And so you may think in some situations, you may not think, but some people do, that because of them not talking the minute you showed up that maybe they're talking about you so that is a thought that is a belief that you have that they're talking about you because you have that belief your thought processes may be like oh maybe they're talking really badly about me maybe they don't like me right 
Because why would someone stop talking to you or stop talking once you like approach them? You know what I mean? Like I feel like that's also another like all or nothing thinking. So because you feel like you are not liked amongst these two friends of of yours or maybe they're talking really poorly about you, you might feel certain things. You might feel sad. You might feel angry. You might feel very frustrated. You might start to isolate yourself because you might think like, well, if they don't want to talk about me or they don't want to include me in things that I won't include them with or include them in things that I want to do, right? So it all becomes a cycle. Because of your, your belief, it affects your thoughts. And because of your thoughts, it affects your actions and your feelings. And it just keeps on going and going and going and going and going. And with cognitive distortions, when it's added to a mix, it just com- it continues the process of you feeling negatively. It's kind of like, it kind of amplifies the negative feelings, right? Because you're not being aware of the reality of it, right? But when you are aware of your cognitive distortions and you are aware of your thought process, it kind of puts those unhelpful thinking to a halt. You start to realize, okay, this doesn't make any sense. You kind of stop yourself from spiraling spiraling any further. And so that's why I think it's really beneficial to be aware of your common cognitive distortions or just unhealthy or unhelpful thinking styles when it comes to depression. Because depression, like you can go on and on and on and feel a certain way and kind of be involved in this like dark cloud. But sometimes you need something to kind of peek through to kind of give you some light to cling on to so that you can escape that dark cloud. Um, Another cognitive distortion I think that is very um, normal is, uh, let me see. Um, I think I've already said mind reading, predicting only negative outcomes for the future. Um, Oh, one thing I do is disqualifying or discounting the positive. So it's basically talking to yourself, telling, or sorry, telling yourself that the good things only happen to you, or telling yourself that the good things that happen to you don't count. For example, this is one of the examples that are listed, is my dad told me I was the best dad in the world, but I'm sure... I'm sure that she's just being nice. So I think this kind of falls in line with like compliments. For me personally, I do not do well with compliments. Like even when I'm struggling, some people are like, oh my God, but you're so cute. You're so nice. Like you're so kind. And it's like, because I'm dealing with such this because I'm dealing with such a negative moment and I'm in a such a negative headspace, I feel like all that positivity doesn't count, right? I feel like it doesn't mean anything. I feel like they're just being nice. And I think that also falls in line with depression because like, let's say like one of the things I believe is like when you tell other people that you're depressed, right? And they're like, oh my God, like, oh, we all love you and things like that. I feel like that's just a normal response that people have when people say that they're depressed and that they're actually not doing it because they're sincere about it. Like, it just kind of, like, it's kind of like I asked, I wanted people to care about me, but when people start caring about me, I feel like it's all fake. But in actuality, like, 
it's still a positive. It's still a win. It's still showing that people do care about me. And so with depression, I think it really kind of forces you or it makes you believe that like the good doesn't count uh, when in actuality it does. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break because I realize I've been talking for like about an hour and like, my God, I don't think I've ever talked this long without having a break. Like, did I forget the routine? My God. Anyway, um, but I'll be back shortly and we'll continue this great conversation.